Welcome everyone to this month's episode of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Art Tomasetti. So let me tell you about my day in Alabama. Last week, I had the opportunity to attend the Southeast section of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots Symposium, which was held in Mobile, Alabama. This is a joint effort between SCTP, the Society of Flight Test Engineers, and AIAA, and it took place at the FlightWorks facility. Now, FlightWorks is an interactive aerospace exhibition and education center that was really a great venue for this event. There are several hands-on interactive displays to explore during the breaks. Now, you've heard me make a case for attending these events before, and I'm going to do it again because I think anyone involved in the profession of aviation, especially the flight test side of aviation, should attend events like these because they make us better. There are forums where you can broaden professional relationships, share ideas and experiences, and promote and enhance safety, communication, and education. All that sounds great, right? And it also sounds a little bit like what's in the mission statement for SETP. Now, I don't do flight tests anymore, and as many of you know, I don't fly anymore except as a passenger. But that doesn't mean that I have stopped trying to contribute to making aviation better and safer. So let me share some of my takeaways from this event. We had seven technical presentations that covered a broad range of topics, starting off with a presentation about new flight test techniques for helicopter air-to-air refueling. Now, this was given by a Brazilian Air Force pilot talking to us via video conference from the United Kingdom. Pretty cool. It was a great talk, which actually ended up winning the award for the best presentation. Now, there was a slide in his presentation showing data that they had captured from a variety of pilots attempting the air refueling task that I found particularly interesting. Now, we're talking about probe and drogue style air refueling between a helicopter and a turboprop tanker. I've done this in several different fixed-wing aircraft, and I will tell you, it can be a challenging task. When the air is perfectly smooth, the drogue, or basket, is still affected by the airstream and the movements of the tanker aircraft and the displacement of the air by the receiver aircraft as it gets closer. Add in a little bad weather, or maybe make it nighttime, and you can most definitely add a few more degree of difficulty points to the task. But the slide he showed had a comparison between inexperienced pilots and experienced pilots as to where their eyes were looking during the maneuver. They captured this data with goggles that tracked retina movement, and the results were plotted on a heat map, which was superimposed on a photo that was the view from the receiver aircraft. Now, the experienced pilot's eyes went back and forth between the tanker and the basket. The inexperienced pilot's eyes were almost exclusively focused on the basket. And I can tell you from personal experience that if you focus on the basket, you tend to chase the basket. If you chase the basket, you can easily start to over-control things and get into pilot-induced oscillations, which leads to nothing good. For those who have done this, you know what I'm talking about. So you learn to take your visual cues from both the tanker and the basket, or more simply, don't chase the basket. I also learned to wiggle my fingers and wiggle my toes. Now, no scientific reason for this other than it ensures I wasn't gripping the controls too tightly and therefore would prevent me from over-controlling, or at least that's what people said. The presentation went on to talk about test techniques when power margin for the task was limited. Really great stuff. Next, we had a presentation on a vision-based landing system that is working towards a future state of supporting autonomous flight for commercial aircraft. There was a historical presentation on the development of the F-16 side stick controller given by a white-haired gentleman who arrived in a very non-standard looking glory. What did I tell you? 
We also learned how the International Test Pilot School in Canada is working to find the optimal balance between simulation and actual flying in test pilot training. And we heard a U.S. Air Force major talk about testing that she was part of that looked at the interference between 5G cellular networks with a particular tactical system on the C-130 aircraft. Now, most of us are aware of the 5G and radar altimeter concerns that have made the news, but 5G has impacts beyond that. A learning point here was that frequency sharing is something that will have to be a part of the plan of the future. We did take a lunch break during the day, but before that, we got a chance to go over and take a tour of the nearby Airbus facility. We actually got to view the assembly line, or at least a portion of the assembly line, where they build the A320. I've seen several assembly lines before for vehicles and airplanes, but it's always, always interesting. And guess what? If you visit FlightWorks in Alabama on certain days, you too can get a tour of the Airbus facility. You can find information about that on their website. One other presentation I will note was about using angle of attack oral cues and energy state for risk reduction in low altitude turn back testing. Now this is for general aviation aircraft for a case where on takeoff they were to lose the engine. Now, I won't cover all the details of this presentation, but one of the things the presenter said resonated with me. In answering an audience member question, he acknowledged that this system would not work for all types of general aviation aircraft, but that the training might still have the applicability for them because it would encourage people to what if the situation for the type of aircraft they flew. Ask any pilot who has been around for a while, and especially those who have survived close calls, and I think that you will find the technique they have used in their career is the what if technique. What if I lose power on takeoff? What if I have an engine failure here? What if the tower denies my request for a flyby? Tower, this is Ghost Rider requesting a flyby. Negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. Oh, actually, scratch that last one. But the flight test community in particular works the what if technique for almost everything we go out and do. And don't take my word for it. Here's someone else who believes in the value of what ifing. Now, this gentleman learned to fly at the age of 15. And during World War II, he served as an Army Air Corps Spitfire pilot. He was shot down in 1944 on his 59th combat mission. And in 1945, he escaped from a POW camp, trekked through Germany, and hijacked a German plane to fly to safety in the Netherlands. He would eventually go on to fly more than 300 types of aircraft and is widely recognized as one of the world's greatest aerobatic pilots. His name? Bob Hoover. And here are his thoughts about what if. What do you think are some critical test piloting skills? Well, enthusiasm, I think, is primary. And the ability to make quick judgments. If you linger too long in an emergency situation, you may not make it. And I tell young test pilots who are quizzing me about the profession, I say, you think of every possible emergencies, any possible emergency that you could have in an airplane, and run through your mind how you will handle that particular emergency. I have gone through more what-ifs in my career of flying than you could ever imagine. I have beforehand thought, what would I do? I'll give you an example. I had thought in my early flying that if I had an engine failure on takeoff and nothing but trees in front of me, would it be better to hit in the top of the trees if you could 
or cut your switch and go in between the trees. And I, it made sense to me that I could go in between the trunks and that force would decelerate me, break the wings off, and I'd come out unscathed on the other side. I had my wife riding with me. I was taking her up for the first aerobatic flight, and I lost the engine. And I did just that and went through these trees. The engine the propeller was stopped. We fell to the ground after we got through the trees, and I couldn't see her. And I said, are you hurt? And some farmer yelled, I hope you broke your neck. Only that isn't exactly what he said. And she raised up and she was okay so that I felt comfortable about it. The fuselage wasn't damaged, the landing gear wasn't damaged, and we just lost all four wings. But it was repairable and I bought four new wings and put them on the way we went. But I thought about that. And there's another one, and I won't go any further, but there's dozens and dozens of them I could talk to you about. But I had thought flying over the mountainous terrain. What would I do if an engine failed and the only place I could land would be on the side of a mountain at a steep slope to it? And I figured the tree thing again. I also figured if it was above the tree line in elevation, that if I came in and went up the side of the the cliff, if you will, and at the last minute dumped the landing gear and the flaps and then stall it in. Means you wouldn't go forward too too much. And you'd have the landing gear down to cushion your landing, the impact. And it just made sense to me that that would be the right thing to do. Now that's up here in the memory bank. Each of these things were in the memory bank before the accident. I didn't even have to think. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I was taken off from Brownfield in San Diego, right on the Mexican border. <clears throat> and I had two other pilots with me. Uh, and they, they worked for our company. And the man was sitting in the front and the lady was sitting in the back. And I got serviced before I took off on another flight in the air show with the Mustang. I asked the young man that uh, had been serviced in the airplane, I said, would you make sure the truck is here because I'm on a short fuse. I've got to go up the coastline here before dark. And I said, be waiting for me with the, fire, uh, with the uh, fuel truck. And he said, yes. He'd be there. And I had also told the manager of the airport to make sure that somebody was there with the fuel truck, and I wanted 100 octane fuel. Yes, sir. Well, I went into the, the manager's office and uh, signed all the papers I had signed and my clearance, and I went back and got in the airplane, and these two folks there put them in cranked up the engines, everything was fine. And I taxied out, and there must have been by now 50 airplanes waiting to depart after the show was over. 
And as I taxied out to get in line, the first person in the line ready for takeoff said, Mr. Hoover, you come in front of me. There's a taxiway there. You take off before me. And I said, no, I'll just wait my time with the others. And then some of the others, I didn't want to offend anybody. And the other people were coming on the radio and saying, Mr. Hoover, we don't mind waiting on you. Take the runway. And so I, I could see I was holding them up because the first man didn't want to go. He really wanted me to go. And then the others were encouraging me to do so. So I did. Now, when you get serviced with the wrong kind of fuel, if I'd got stayed in that line, the engine would have quit before I got to the takeoff position. Because that's the way it works. There's some residual fuel in there. And when that's burned up, which is a matter of a minute or so, then that kerosene hits those cylinders and they aren't going to fire. <clears throat> So I took off, and everything was fine. But I was losing airspeed. I was on my best climb speed. And the propellers are running, the engines are running, fuel pressure, oil pressure, everything was just where it should be. But I'm losing airspeed. And so I dumped the nose, and I had no place to go but a deep ravine off of the north side of Brownfield in San Diego. And it goes all the way around, the, the, about halfway down the field. I didn't have enough altitude to turn back. And the only way I could stay alive was to get back on airspeed and get into that ravine. Now, here I am with land all above me, all the way around, a dead end down here. And these two pilots with me, they said, my God, there's no way we're going to make it. And I said, have a little faith. I think we're going to make it. And so I did just what I had thought about on the mountains. I stayed right down in there, and when there was nothing but disaster waiting, I had the airspeed, and so I just pulled it up like this, dropped the gear and flaps, hit the side of this incline, and I bet I didn't skid more than about 200 feet, and I hit a rock pile, and the airplane catapulted up and onto less of a slope. And what I was worried about was going back down into this uh, canyon, this ravine. And we got out, and I looked over the airplane, and I said, it could only be one thing. It's got to be wrong, wrong fuel. So I went back and checked underneath that, smelled it, and it was, it was kerosene. And so I, then I surveyed the airplane. Everybody was okay except myself and the co-pilot, and the instrument panel came in on our legs, our shins, and the airplane was wrinkled from the nose all the way back through the baggage compartment. The engine was twist, twisted, and the gear was collapsed. And I started thinking, that young man who services the airplane must be worrying himself silly because I knew that he wouldn't have done anything like this purposely, but I got to worrying about his feelings. I, when I called the May Day and I went out of sight to everybody on the airport, it looked like we'd clobbered. And uh, within a short while, they had a helicopter out there, had airplanes circling first, then a helicopter 
And they picked me up and took me over to the, the airport manager's office. What you just heard came to us from the SCTP Oral History Collection, and you can find the full recording on the SCTP website under the Foundations tab. If you're starting to wonder, hey, I haven't seen a flight test safety fact recently, well, guess what? One is coming out almost as I speak. If you don't receive a copy, you can find it on our website at www.flighttestsafety.org. Don't forget to check the websites for SCTP, SFT, and AIAA for all of the upcoming events. Reminder that our North American Flight Test Safety Workshop will be happening in Wichita, Kansas in the first week of May. Also a reminder that we're still accepting nominations for the Tony LeVere Flight Test Safety Award. You can find those details on our website as well. Great way to recognize members of your team or individuals who are doing work that contributes to flight test safety. Well, that's a wrap for this month. I hope you enjoyed hearing from aviation legend Bob Hoover and a little bit about my day in Alabama. If you've got feedback or ideas, we'd love to hear them, so send them our way. I will be back next month, and if you look at this next edition of the Flight Test Safety Fact, you'll get a little teaser for what will be next month's podcast episode. Until then, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com. the number two, climb.com.